Test out the microphone here. My, my name is Dixon. I'm an alcoholic. Good to be here with you. Good to be sober this morning uh, with family and, and friends. Um, so um, I have a sobriety date. Uh, that is June 2nd, 2007. I have a, a sponsor who I'm, um, best I can tell, actively sponsored by, stay current with. Um, I sponsor other men. My home group is in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's the Vision for You group. We meet on Tuesdays, uh, 7 o'clock. We've got a couple home group members here. If you're uh, <clears throat> ever traveling through the Ville on a Tuesday, please come see us. We, we'd love to, love to have you. Um, so, so just uh, what, what I'm doing here, you, you can see that the, the, the talk is titled A Vision for You, the, the History of, of AA. So, so that's really what I'm going to focus on is, is early AA history. And just to give that a little perspective while, while we're doing that today, um, the, the purpose of, of this conference is to uh, communicate the simple, personal, powerful message of, of AA. Um, in, in order that AA members can, can hopefully um, more effectively practice that and, and carry that. And, and so I think the hope is, is through this talk and the other talks of uh, A members sharing their experience, um, we hope that um, you know, A members can take this back to, to our lives and our groups and our homes and, and, um, and take something from this today and, and, and be able to be more effective and helping other alcoholics and practicing these things in our lives. And so We've got uh, three speakers uh, after, after myself who are going to share their experience with these foundational topics of the A message of, of being part of a home group, of practicing the principles of the steps, and of carrying the, the message of, of Alcoholics Anonymous to, to others. And um, my job here is, is to um, look at the A message uh, in the context of A history. So if you look at the big book, the last chapter in the big book is A Vision for You. And, um, and, and what they said in there is that they, uh, that they wanted to give a vision of what they hoped AA would be like in the future by letting you know what it was like when it first started, to, to really understand the essence and heart of, of what those principles were. And, and that's basically what we're doing today. So a vision for you says, perhaps the best way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of the fellowship among us. Um, so, so that's what we're, we're doing is we're going back to the history and, and really looking at the essence of that. And, um, and so the, the, what, what, we're, what, what we're not trying to do is say, A needs to look exactly today like it did early on. Um, I think that um, you know, one of the things that I found in looking through this that, is that the, you know, one of the greatest assets of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it has changed and stayed current over time through, through its literature and through its fellowship as, 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 as it has grown and, and to reach certain cultures and different areas. And, and it didn't even look the same in, in the beginning. Whether that was in Akron or Cleveland or New York, it looked a little bit different in all those areas. But, but what we're saying is that you know, throughout that growth and, and throughout it being a little bit different and groups being autonomous and doing a little different in different areas, um, it, at the heart of it, it is the same. And there's some simple principles that, that are at the heart of that. And, and that's, what, that's what I'm trying to communicate um, this morning. So there's a couple things. Uh, one out of the four to the third edition uh, that speaks to that. It says in the... In spite of the great increase in the size and the span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal. Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. For the fourth edition, says, in any meeting, anywhere, A's share experience, strength, and hope with each other in order they may stay sober and help other alcoholics. Motor to motor or face to face, A's speak the language of the heart in all its power and simplicity. So I, I think that speaks well to what we're trying to do this morning. My purpose this morning is also to keep everybody awake during the history talk. Hope to be able to do that. If, if you need to go get some more coffee, we got somebody. I, I understand. I understand. Um, so I'm, 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 not, I'm going to be sharing a lot of experience of the early members in the Roots of AA. I'm not going to be sharing a lot of my experience this morning. I, I did want to just hit on a, a, a few things just to make this a little bit more personal. Um, but because I am here this morning with you because of these principles um, in, in my life. I am an alcoholic who's recovered because of these um, principles. And, and so um, I am someone who uh, was never able to control my drinking, never was really interested in controlling my drinking. And uh, that progressively got worse and worse and worse and, until a point where I wanted to quit, didn't want to do it anymore, it wasn't working anymore, and I couldn't stop doing it. And when I tried to quit, I, I couldn't stay quit. 
And, and, I, and I was a hopeless alcoholic. I had no hope. And I really didn't want to live anymore. And, and what happened to me was that um, God intervened in my life. I, I did a lot to get myself to, to that point. I did a lot of drinking. Uh, but, but I believe that, that God intervened on that day and gave me a moment of clarity where I was able to see myself as I really was. And I believe that everybody in this room um, has, has got that same thing in their story where there was some divine intervention and, and the grace of God intervened and, and just put me on a different path that last day drinking. And, and that's where my story started. And, and from there, I went to a treatment center where AA members and AA groups came in there and shared about their alcoholism, not mine, theirs, and, and the hopelessness of that and the fact that they had recovered through these principles of, of the group and, and, and the steps and, um, and, and didn't ask anything of me and just shared that freely. And, and because of that, I, I found hope and I found identification. And when I went from there to a halfway house, I... Um, I went to AA groups, and, and I was fortunate to go to AA groups that were, that were solid, structured, you know, three legacy groups where, where they were ready when I got there, you know, that night. It was set up. It was thought through. There was fellowship before and after. They made me feel welcome. They didn't ask anything of me. They just accepted me as I would, was. I, I felt at home for the first time in my life and part of a, part of a family where I never had been before. They, they you know, during the meeting, the, the, structure of the meeting was thought out. You know, they, they had a topic. Someone was prepared. It, it was set up. And, and the members there shared about their alcoholism and, and the hopelessness of that and the recovery from that. And, and because of that, um, I found hope and identification there. And, and, um, and, 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 and through that and through sponsorship, they, they, uh, they said, hey, if you want what we have, you need to get busy immediately. You need to get busy being a part of this group and you need to get busy growing closer to God through, through these steps, and you, you need to get busy trying to help other alcoholics with however you can, immediately. Um, and I've had, been blessed with sponsors who, um, they have not um, only um, carried me through the books and through the steps, not asking anything of me, giving freely of everything that they have and they are, um, but, but they have showed me what the big book and the steps looks like in, in a person's life. Um, and, and set the example that I can, that I can see that in action. Um, and and that's, that's been way more important than, than anything that they've said or, or read through with me. Um, so, so those are all the same principles that, that we're talking about today. And, and, and so I just want you to know that those have worked in my life, and that's why I'm here this morning. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the Oxford group, and we're going to jump into that for a little bit because that's really where A came from and the principles that A came from. But, but those principles didn't work real well, not all of them for the alcoholics. There were some of those principles they, they didn't really like and um, didn't take too real well. And, and so they, they got rid of some of those and, and, and really kept the rest. And, and A was kind of born out of that really through experience, through what worked and, and what didn't work. And so we're going to hit on the Oxford group and then we're going to hit on early AA <clears throat> and these principles, of, um, these principles of the group and, and the steps and, um, and, and helping others. So the Oxford group, <clears throat> the Oxford group was, um, was really born out of one man's experience, just like A was. Um, so, so Frank Buckman was that guy. And um, Frank Buckman was a Lutheran minister, uh, trained, and uh, his first assignment was a, uh, was a sleepy little church in this little town where there wasn't much of a congregation or anything to speak of. And um, really what he was about from that day on the rest of his life was that um, he, uh, he saw people's need and he was able to turn things um, where there wasn't much there in, in, into something special and bring power to that and bring new life into that. And he did that immediately from his first assignment. He, he immediately started trying to help people in that in that community that, that were needy, that, that turned into him starting uh, basically a halfway house for, um, uh, for troubled youth that were in, in the slums that didn't have families, and he took them in. Most, a lot of them were alcoholics and drug addicts, and he was able to see the need in those people and speak to that in a way that he wasn't preaching or trying to fix, but it was very relational, and, and he created really life change in, 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 these, in these youth um, from early on. And, and what happened there was that that ended in, in the board of directors <clears throat> Um, cutting the funding, and, and, and Frank got resentful. He got angry. Um, he, he stormed out of there. He, he, he quit, um, and he felt like he wasn't being appreciated, and uh, <clears throat> probably identify with that. And, um, 
And, and he left, and he was just full of resentment, and, and he was emotionally and spiritually just in a bad place, and, and he went on this trip to, to Europe to kind of regroup. And while he was there, he, um, there was an evangelical Christian conference that was going on there in, in, in England at the time. It was called the Keswick um, Convention. And he was hoping um, to find a guy there named F.B. Meyer. And uh, F.B. Meyer was... Um, was a guy who was an evangelical, just kind of preacher, notable guy at the time, and, and, he, and Frank was hoping that this guy could help him and that he might be there. He didn't find the guy there. What happened to him there is that he had an experience similar to what I had on my last day um, drinking, is, is he had a spiritual experience. So, so he sat in at a little church where a lady was giving a talk, and, and um, you can look back and see what the talk was, and, and, he, and he's mentioned that he already knew all the information that lady was saying. He, he already knew all of those things. And so what happened that day was divine intervention, where God spoke through that lady and gave life to information that he already knew and helped him just see those things in himself. And so, so basically he was convicted during that talk, through that talk, of the fact of his seeing himself as he really was, of his selfishness, of his resentment, of his anger, of his just wanting things his way where he was supposed to be in ministry and the service of God and he was really making it all about him. And in that moment, he was able to see all of those things. And something in him just kind of broke and changed and, and surrendered. And it was that moment of clarity that, that he had. And so um, that's really where that, was, you know, where that was born. And in that same moment, he, you know, he repented. Uh, he asked forgiveness. Um, and he took action. He did something about it. Um, so he immediately wrote a letter to those board of directors and, and essentially made amends and admitted his fault and asked their forgiveness. Same day, he went back to the people that he was staying with who were Christian people, and, and he witnessed and shared what had happened to him. And not only to them, but they had a son who really wasn't interested in Christianity, who they hadn't been able to reach. And he spent some time sharing that story with that son, and because he shared that in a very practical way of his experience and not preaching, and just the power of what had happened to him, the, the son was changed and gave his life to God that same day just because of the way that he went about that and so just in one day he had that experience where a lot of the principles that we ended up receiving were, were really born um, <clears throat> a couple things happened after that one is that um, so he went from there and took a job with the YMCA at, at, uh, at Penn State uh, College at the time and uh, what he learned there was a couple things one he learned uh, just the power of small groups so he would get these little small groups of students doing these Bible study and trying to go out and help other peoples together and so that's really where that concept was born. Um, and so he changed a lot of people there. He took the, uh, uh, the membership of the YMCA and people who had given their life to Christ from, I think it was, it was 35% when he got there, and he took it to 75% of, of, of the whole college population, was, was a member of that, was coming to the Bible studies. I mean, he changed a lot of people, but he was convicted about the fact that while all these people had made a decision their lives really didn't change in a powerful way like his had. It, it really didn't go deep enough. And so he felt like there was really something missing. And, and so what happened was um, the same F.B. Meyer that he was looking for at that Keswick convention ended up coming through the college. And so he met with this guy and told him what he was struggling with and he didn't seem to be able to get the results that he was wanting to. And, and F.B. Meyer said, said two things. Um, the first thing that he said was, um, you need to make personal man-to-man -man interviews central rather than organizing of, of meetings. So he was doing these big group meetings, these big Bible study meetings, trying to reach a lot of people at one time. He, he was concerned about numbers. And F.B. Meyer told him, you need to talk one person to another, and, and you need to figure out what their need really is. And there, there's a good book. I've got a bunch of books over here from the Oxford group, if anybody wants to look at them afterwards. Um, and one is called Soul Surgery, and it, and it speaks to that, that you've got to find a person's need only by talking with them one-on-one -on -one so that you can then address that need and really create the, the life change in them. And, and so that was the first thing that, that Meyer gave him. Um, <clears throat> Buckman said that after that, he no longer th thought in terms of numbers, but in terms of people. So that's obviously a principle that, that we took from that. Um, Meyer also asked uh, Buckman if, uh, if he let the, the Holy Spirit guide him in, in every single thing that he did. Um, and, and all the little things, like just the tiny things. And, um, and, and if he gave God a chance to really speak to him about what those things are. And Buckman said, 
You know, no, not really. I, I basically just generally gave my life to God and kind of do what he, I, I think he wants me to do. And, and I have some kind of morning Bible study and prayer time. But no, I, I really don't give much time to actually speak. So, so Frank Buckman really didn't believe that God could speak to people directly. And, and, and Meyer pointed out that, that he can, just like he did in the Old Testament. Go here, go here, do this, fix this, that, that God can still do that. And so that, those were really the missing pieces that, that, that resulted in the uh, morning quiet time that was central in, in the Oxford group and made its way into our um, <clears throat> step 11. Um, and so Buckman continued to um, kind of develop that concept. So, that, so the first day that he practiced that, he decided to spend an hour from 5 to 6 in the morning, early in the morning, just giving God the full hour to speak to him. And he would just kind of write down whatever God, God told him to do. And, and, and more importantly, he would try to go out and do whatever God gave him. And, and that, he got results from that immediately. First day he tried that, there was, there was a student that, that God just put in his, in his mind. And he went out and saw that student, um, who that student was just refusing to give his life to God. And, and that day, because God showed him to go on that day, and God did the work and, and not him in planning that, uh, that student was changed. And, and went out and changed, you know, 10 other students and just resulted in, and then they all started doing this concept of spending this time in the morning and letting God um, really guide them and having a complete surrender of all of their lives and not have any real gray area there and seeing that you can have new power in your life as, as a result of that. <clears throat> so there were, there were a couple just, to, you know, um, you, you, Buckman realized we need to have some checks here in terms of what God's given us, and we get that in our 11th step. You, know, you can pay for this and all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. And, uh, and so we had a couple checks that were involved in this, and, and one was, was the absolutes, uh, the four absolutes of honesty, unselfishness, purity, and love. Those, those were big. Those made their way into, into early AA. And those came from, um, from, those actually came from Robert E. Spears' book, The Principles of Jesus. They were derived from the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Matthew. It's really just kind of where those came from. Um, so, so that was another check as he would run all these things through these, these principles. You know, is it pure? Is it honest? Is it um, selfless? Um, is it unselfish? And, and if it met those and if it lined up with the teachings of the church and if it lined up with the teachings of the scriptures... And, and he would also kind of run it by other people who were trying to live by this principle of being guided by God. <clears throat> and if it met those checks, then um, he would do it. Um, uh, another thing Buckman um, uh, believed in, in, in received from God during these times that you know, his purpose was really to change the world. So this made its way into the Oxford group, and one of the things that was a little bit different in, in, in terms of AA and the Oxford group and their purposes was the Oxford group was about, was about changing the world, and, and Buckman believed that um, he had been given this practical program um, kind of of action by God to accomplish that where he could um, change somebody, where they would be basically a life changer and guided by God, and, and God could use them to change others, change others, change others. And, and changing people was really the heart of this, of what they were doing. That if you weren't changing someone, then there was something wrong with you. There was some sin in your life or something that you weren't doing right. You need to look at yourself if you weren't getting any results. And um, so he believed in, in, in doing that through those, through those actions. But also, he really tried to target, um, you know, and he got this experience from colleges. I mean, these, these were the future leaders of the, of the world where they were at Penn State, and then he went from there to Princeton, and then he went to uh, Oxford University. And so he believed if he can reach these people, then they would really change, change the world because they were going to be leaders in the world. And, and so he took that concept and really took those people who were influential people and kind of the, had the tools to, to, those people had the tools to reach the social and the economic elite and, and really even world leaders and so they would go out in teams and, and really try to reach the top of society. And so they believed if they did that, then the, then the change would just make its way down. And so, you know, they, they really, that was really kind of their target audience and what they did, which ended up being a little bit different than the target audience of, of the alcoholics who made their way in there. <coughs> so initially, the, the movement... Um, so those were really the principles in, in, in the movement um, where this came from. And the, the movement was originally called the First Century Christian Fellowship is, is what Frank came up with. And so his thought, and this really speaks to kind of the, the fellowship aspect of it. 
um, that made its way into our, in our groups. Um, that came from um, the Bible, but it can be found in the book of Acts, um, chapter 2, 42 through 47. <clears throat> and I think this is really good. It speaks to a lot of the principles that, that we have in our fellowship. So it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold the property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I, I think that's really um, good. So, actually, uh, Frank Amos, who was, uh, if you remember kind of the Rockefeller story, A went to Rockefeller for money, Rockefeller assigned this guy, Frank Amos, to investigate kind of what A was. Amos gave a report back to Rockefeller in terms of what A was, which was, is kind of informative if you're looking at the history, what was AA at the time. This was in 1939. So, so one of the ways that he described AA in that, and I'll reference it a couple other times uh, throughout the talk, but he said, in many respects, speaking of AA, their meetings have taken on the form of the meetings described in the Gospels of the early Christians during the first century. So it, it speaks to that, to that same thing, is the point. <clears throat> so uh, just a few other things on the Yacht group, and, and we'll keep moving here. Um, the, the groups would meet, um, the, the regular groups, they would meet um, regularly to have quiet time, <clears throat> to share the guidance that they had received during their quiet time. Uh, to study the Bible, to give witness of their changed lives for new people attending. And I mentioned that the focus of the movement was really on, on changing others. <clears throat> the way that they did outreach was individually, just, just through their lives in the, in the community, as, as being changed people, and, and they felt like their lives should really um, be a, a program of attraction. Um, and, and people want that, and, and they shouldn't have to, to preach at people. Um, and the people that they, they knew should see that they were changed. And, and so that's one way that they attracted new people. But, but they would also go out into new communities and really all over the world. And Frank would take these groups of people and they would have uh, these house parties where they would rent out this hotel or this nice house for the weekend or for the whole week. And um, <clears throat> they would send out these really nice cards to really all the social elite in that area and have people just kind of come and hang out and it was fellowship and it was social and it was casual, but they would have speakers um, who, would, who would witness and basically share what's, what's happened to them in their lives through practicing these, these principles that were, that were very new at the time. And, uh, and, and, and then in, in between those speakers, they would kind of talk to people individually, kind of one-on-one. -on -one and talk to them about what do you think about this? How is your life going? Are, are, you know, do you, did you hear something that you like? Do you want this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to try this? And over the course of a weekend or a week, people would either leave, not interested in it, not want to make any change, or maybe they kind of spoke to something that's a little sensitive, they're not willing to change. Um, <clears throat> and, and they intentionally, intentionally did that. Um, and, or people would make a surrender. And a lot of people did. And, and what would happen through that is that um, local groups would be started through those people that made a surrender. So they would start local. So that's how the Oxford group ended up in, in Akron, you know, where, where Dr. Bob ran into it. That's how it ended up in New York, uh, where Bill ran into it. Um, his local groups were started through those essentially outreach efforts of, of these groups. And Frank felt like there was more power in these groups of people all giving the same message just through a little bit different experiences. So it sounds a lot like when we're going into institutions and all giving kind of our message, you know, same message through, through, through different um, experiences, hearing it over and over and over. Um, and same thing within our groups. Um, so the Oxford group was not a denomination or sect. Uh, and, and it included you know, any... any Christians, really, um, similar to A, not being a denomination or sect. Um, so it did not have really a pro I talked about some of the principles in it. It didn't have, I mean, you hear that they had these five you know, or six tenets. They, they, they didn't. Um, 
they didn't have anything. So, so they believed that this was born out of, out of the Holy Spirit and out of the Bible. And that you can't put a box on that. You can't put steps in that. You can't put anything in order with that. The, the, the Holy Spirit works different, differently for any individual is different. And, and that it can't be kind of an assembly line type deal that, that you've got to, through guidance, um, let the Spirit guide you into how to help somebody. And so they, they did have a, a, a few things. So, so there's the book up here, uh, The Soul Surgery gives the five C's. When Man Listens gives some of these um, kind of principles. Um, so the five procedures, give, give in to God, listen to God's direction, check guidance, restitution, sharing for witness and for confession. So we mentioned a lot of those already. Five C's of confidence in terms of developing a relationship with someone so that you can speak into their life. Um, confession, conviction, conversion, continuance. Now, what it'll say is that those could happen in any order for people. Some people, you may be talking to them and, and, and you may be able to get them to make surrender right there. Boom, on the spot. Turn the life over. Get them through the rest of it. Or you may need to just hang out with that person, develop a relationship, not talk about anything related to Christianity for a year and let them just trust you. And then the surrender comes. So I, I, I thought that was really interesting. That was really helpful um, you know, for me. <clears throat> so I'll hit through these last points here. <clears throat> they believed in the abundant life. Basically, um, whereas we say, hey, is your drinking working out for you or not? <laughs> How's that working out for you? Right? That's how we get somebody to step one. They would just say, hey, how's your life working out for you? Like, is it really what you want? Is there something missing there? Do you want something more? Do you know there's something more? You know, God came here to give us an abundant life, a full life. And really, they help people see that through them being a light, and them sharing their experience of what their life is like now. And, and, and that helped people to see their need, is that, that, that they had something that that person wanted is really how that operated. So they spoke of the kingdom of God, that God is, is, is uh, the Bible talks about that, and that, what that means is that God is, is the king of my life, of every area of my life, where there's no gray area um, at all. And he's got to have control of everything. And so they really believed in this kind of all-or-nothing deal from, from the beginning. If you really want results, you can't hang on to any of it. It's just treat it as an experiment. Just give it a shot. You know, and giving him control of everything and letting him speak to you. And anything he says to you, go out and do it. Just, just see how it goes and if you get any better results. <clears throat> so surrender willing to obey anything that he says to you during these quiet times. And really, everything came through the quiet time. The inventory came through the quiet time. What you needed to do about those things in terms of forgiveness or restitution came through the quiet time. And so what, you know, what they said is that if God shows you something and gives you something and you don't do it, boom, you're blocked. You're not getting anything else. You can't say, no, I don't want to do that. What's next? So you can't do that. So, so you got to, it says disobedience blocks the line, right? So I got to do whatever comes if I want the next thing. And that's, that's kind of how they operate it. <clears throat> so if I'm convicted, I need to take action to correct that, whatever that, that, that is. And that comes through you know, the quiet time and also checking that with others. And that um, whatever I'm getting, I confess those things to other people for the purpose of confession, which made its way into our fifth step. Uh, for the purpose of checking the guidance, which is kind of the 11th step, and also for, for witnessing, hey, this has got what God gave me, this is what I did, this is how it worked out for me, which is kind of our 12th step. Um, <clears throat> so it says, after correction comes direction, right? So after I get all that stuff straightened out in my life, God says, cool, now I can use you. And um, you can share that experience with others, and I'm going to give you some direction on where to go and who to change, and now you've got new power in your life. So, so that's really how that worked, and that's kind of the spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. A couple slogans I like. <clears throat> they said, carry news, not views. Right? That means share your experience, not your opinion, or what you know. Uh, we, we use some of these. Changed people change people. <clears throat> right? so, so we say you can't give away something you haven't got. Study men, not books. I think maybe uh, you might be the only big book somebody sees. Maybe that applies there. Um, win your argument. Lose your man. Right? So it's more important to, uh, to help people and to be happy than to be right. I think I've heard that. Um, 
All right, so that's it. That's it for the Oshman. Um <clears throat> We're getting there. I think we're on time. We go 10 minutes over. Jerry and Adam, see them. <laughs> Cut into my time a little bit. <clears throat> Okay, <clears throat> A's in the auction group. I think most people here know kind of the story. If, if you don't, it's, it's pretty easy to find in terms of, you know, um, rolling hazard, alcoholic, went to crawl young, try to get treatment for it, stay within a year. That's in the, there's a solution chapter that talks about that, right? Through psychiatry, didn't work, got drunk immediately, came back. Why didn't it work? Because you're an alcoholic, you need to have a spiritual experience. I'm a member of church, that's not gonna get it. Right, and then he ends up in, in the auction group <clears throat> and has this, this spiritual experience through their process. He then goes and helps Abby Thatcher, who's kind of a childhood friend of, of his. They knew each other real well, drank together. And so because of that, he's able to help them because they already had the identification from knowing each other. And he, and he gave them this message. And Abby was kind of court-ordered anyway, so uh, it was extra, <laughs> extra motivation there. And, uh, and, and so that Abby helps Bill basically in the same way. They already knew each other. The identification was already there. And then, he, and then the results in Abby's life were evident. You can read that in, in Bill's story. Um, and, and, and so, and then Bill tried to help people for six months and Bill couldn't help anybody. And, and why not? And it was because he was preaching to people and because those people didn't have the same identification because they hadn't drank together and known each other. And so really what changed things was Dr. Silkworth told uh, Bill Wilson, Dr. Silver didn't only contribute, you know, the problem in terms of the allergy and the hopelessness and the doctor's opinion of what alcoholism is, but also told, told Bill, hey, you got to lead with that. Nobody's going to believe in God just on the, you know, you tell them about the benefits of believing in God, that you have to tell them of their need for God by showing, showing them their hopelessness by speaking of your hopelessness and sharing your experience. And that was Dr. Silkworth's contribution and really to, to AA, which is the, you know, one of the foundational principles that, that we have. And there's a solution chapter that talks about the fact that little or nothing can be done for anyone until this identification is reached, one alcoholic with another. And so the, 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 that had happened just accidentally through Roland and Evie and Bill, but, 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 but it's, they were only helping people they kind of grew up drinking with at that time. And so to help people that you didn't know, the, Dr. Silkworth had to make this contribution, and, and, and Dr. Bob was the first one that he tried that with. So I just read. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a good amount of things here um, as we're going through um, these, and, and this comes from uh, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, which is an excellent book because it's just basically Dr. Bob and other early AA members just just talking about some of these principles of the group and the steps and helping people. It's just them sharing their experience. It's, it's not you know, information. So. Dr. Bob says, uh, he, Bill, gave me information about the subject of alcoholism, which was undoubtedly helpful, of far more importance, he continued, was the fact that he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regards to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language, he knew all the answers, and certainly not because he had picked them up in his reading. He also said, um, Dr. Bob cited another point of identification, the association with both the Oxford Group, Bill in New York for five months, and I in Akron for two and a half years, but there was a significant difference. Bill had acquired their idea of service. I had not. Um, so, so Bill had been trying to help people. That's what kept him sober for six months. Didn't keep any of them sober the way he was doing it, but it kept him sober. But, but Dr. Bob had been part of the same Oxford group, but he couldn't stay sober because he wasn't trying to help anybody because he was afraid it would mess up his income. Um, <clears throat> so so Bill, and, uh, Bill lived there, stayed there with, with Dr. Bob and Ann Smith for, um, for, for three months through that summer. And, and through those three months and over the next two years, really, AA was born out of, out of experience and then peanut bars of that auction group. But here's the thing is that they were, the, they were part of the auction group. They didn't split from the auction group until um, 37 in New York, 39 in Akron and Cleveland. But the truth was, if you really look at it, they were always kind of separate from the, from the Oxford group. I mean, they were, from the very beginning, they were called the alcoholic squad of the Oxford group, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, and they, were, they went to the Wednesday night, night meeting that was the Oxford group there, there in Cleveland. Um, but, but after that, they went back to Dr. Bob's house, just the alcoholics. And every other night, they were at Dr. Bob's house with just the alcoholics. And in the mornings, they were at Dr. Bob's house with just the alcoholics. And all during the day, they were together trying to help people and trying to grow closer to God and trying to help each other. 
And so there was always this kind of separate group of alcoholics who were doing things a little bit differently. They were all just trying to help alcoholics, and the ox group was trying to help, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum. And so there was a clear difference from, from the very beginning, and when they split, it was just kind of making official what had really been kind of going on all, all along, just, just to give you a little perspective there. So, um, so we'll hit on kind of three topics here. One is, uh, one is the steps. Um, the other is helping people, and, and the other is the group. Um, so, uh, so, so they immediately, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson began uh, seeking God and really kind of going through the steps. And all of these things just developed over time through experience. And, um, you know, and, and Smith was Dr. Bob and Bill's sponsor. Um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. If you look at what was going on and um, in terms of the steps and the Oxford group and the teachings and these principles, and, and there's a good book, it's, it's not up here, um, that's called Ann Smith's Journal. And th this is where, kind of during her quiet time and reading the Bible, you know, she talked about what God was giving her. And so that's basically what she gave them, is, is what, what she had. And some really, really, really good stuff in there. Um, <clears throat> so here's a quote just on what they were doing in the morning from Dr. Bob's kids. They said, each morning there was devotion after a long silence in which they awaited inspiration and guidance and would read from the Bible. James was our favorite, he said, Dr. Bob's son said. Reading from her chair in the corner, she would softly conclude, faith without works is dead. Sounds simple. Um, when someone said, then someone said a prayer, she recalled. After that, we were supposed to say one ourselves. Then we'd be quiet. Finally, everyone would share what they got or didn't get. This lasted for at least half an hour and sometimes went as long as an hour. Dr. Bob said they were convinced that the answer to the problems was in the good book. The parts that we found absolutely essential were in the Sermon on the Mount, the 13th, 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and in the book of James. This was the beginning of A's flying blind period. They had the Bible. They had the precepts of the Oxford group. They also had their own instincts. They were working or working out the A program, the 12 steps, without quite knowing <clears throat> how they were doing it. So that was in 35. So, so by 1938, this is kind of what they had worked into in, in terms of the, 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 the program. Um, <clears throat> and this is, again, from Frank Amos, who kind of wrote a report. He went and investigated, you know, kind of checked out all the A and Akron um, in, in 1938. And uh, so he says that uh, in Akron, they had the following steps at this time. One. The alcoholic must realize that he is an alcoholic, incurable from a medical viewpoint, and that he must never drink and again anything with alcohol in it. Two, he must surrender himself absolutely to God, realizing that in himself there is no hope. <clears throat> Three, not only must he want to stop drinking permanently, he must remove from his life other sins, such as hatred, adultery, others which frequently accompany alcoholism. Unless he will do this absolutely, Smith and his associates refuse to work with him. Tough. I don't know if I would have made the cut. Four, he must have devotions every morning, a quiet time of prayer and some reading from the Bible and other religious literature. Unless this is faithfully followed, there is grave danger of backsliding. Five, he must be willing to help other alcoholics get straightened out. This throws up a protective barrier and strengthens his own willpower and convictions. Six, it is important but not vital that he meet frequently with other reformed alcoholics and form both social and religious camaraderie. Seven, important but not vital that he attend some religious service at, at least once weekly. All the above is being carried out faithfully by the Akron group, and not a day passes when there is not one or more new victims to work on. <laughs> Smith is their leader by common consent. <clears throat> So just between, between 1938 and, and the actual book coming out, um, obviously Bill expanded the, 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 the steps to, to 12 steps um, just to, to kind of get rid of some wiggle room, and that's, he, he felt like he was inspired and kind of guided to do that. And then you also had the atheist or agnostics, uh, mainly in New York. Uh, there was Hank P. and Jim B., um, who were pretty, pretty firm on that side of the fence. And, uh, and then there were more moderates kind of believing in more inclusion, Bill being one of them that contributed to, to the religious angle being, being taken out and God, as we understand it, being, being put in. And, and so all this kind of happened through the group conscience and through experience and, 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 and really you know, believing in everybody together saying, yeah, we believe this is right. This is how it's, how it's supposed to be. <clears throat> 
So that's, that's the steps, and we get a lot of the steps too, and, and when they were well, uh, helping alcoholics and how they were helping alcoholics. So um, immediately, Bill Wilson helps Dr. Bob. They have their talk, right? Next day, they, I mean, they, they go out looking for other alcoholics to help. Bob served one day. And, and so Bill knew from his experience and, and told Dr. Bob, look, I've stayed sober this six months by trying to go out and help people every day. That's, that's what we got to do. So they really believed that was really the heart of what was going to keep them sober was this, you know, this morning growing closer to God, practicing this Oxford group stuff and, and helping other people and then bringing, bringing them into that, which results in kind of the fellowship of, of the group. So the first week, they, uh, they found a, a, a surgeon, <clears throat> and the first couple guys, they didn't want to stop drinking. They are alcoholics that didn't want to stop drinking, but Bill and Bob were trying to stay sober, so they grabbed them anyway and tried to get them sober. And um, yeah, I have some experience with that. Um, but, but really what they learned through these guys, and this is what you know, one of my sponsors told me, is these guys are preparing you for the guys that are coming later that are, that are actually going to want to do this. And so that's what happened is they learned about helping people and what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, in the beginning, they started taking all these guys into their home. You know, Bill did it, Bob did it, and they realized, man, this, this isn't a good idea at all. And this caused a lot of problems and nobody's even staying sober. Um, and, and so, they, you know, they, that's what made it in our book. We shouldn't keep them there for very long at all. Um, <clears throat> so, so this developed out of experience just like everything else. So, so the surgeon was kind of week one, and that, that didn't work out too good. He didn't want to quit drinking, and then there was... And then Dr. Bob drank again after two weeks because he wasn't willing to go out and make his amends um, and because he wanted to go to the medical conference and tell everybody, you know, that he had found the answer and how sober he was, just, you know, a lot of pride. And so he got drunk on the way there. And when he came back, he went out that, same, that, that next day and made all his amends and came back and, and really, you know, they had, had any, even more enthusiasm for, for helping people. Because um, I... So... so that after Bob got got sober finally, you know, roughly uh, June June tenth, nineteen thirty five, um, they found Eddie R was the next case, and, and Eddie was um, <clears throat> he he was uh, not uh, stable emotionally, mentally, as well as being alcoholic, and so they, they brought him into the house as well as wife and kids, and uh, they, they would lock him up in the upstairs room, and then he would escape, you know, down the waste pipe, and then. One be chasing after him with a car, or other on foot, you know, trying to try and get him. And uh, he was chasing Ann around the house with a butcher knife, um, all sorts of stories. And so, you know, Bill and Bob were—they were finding these people and chasing after these people, morning, afternoon, night. I mean, they didn't have any work. They were doing this all day, every day. And um, <clears throat> that was really what was keeping them sober in the beginning, as well as what they were doing in the morning and being part of the Oxford group. But they spent a ton of time doing that. Uh, Bill D. Uh, was, was the third case, which is third, third story and in, in second story in the back of, back of the book. So a relative of Tony over there, Tony D. Um, he stayed sober permanently. Uh, Ernie G. Uh, was the next. He's the uh, devil may care young chap that, that they mentioned in there. He actually ended up marrying Dr. Bob's daughter, which Dr. Bob wasn't real happy about. And... Um, <laughs> He stayed sober about five years until he, until he didn't stay sober, and then, and then they got, uh, the marriage didn't work out either. Um, <clears throat> so that was basically it for Bill's, you know, three months there during that summer. Is there, there's really three guys. Um, uh, two, two of them stayed sober, two of them didn't. Um, but more importantly, they, they learned a lot of lessons um, through that in terms of how to help people. So, so this is what kind of came out of that in terms of helping people. So it says hospitalization was another must in the early days. I'm, I'm going to read kind of this whole page. So bear with me here. Even prospects who were fairly well dried out when they asked for help were required to put themselves in private rooms at city hospital for periods ranging from five to eight days. These patients were allowed only a Bible as reading material. Generally, their only visitors were recovered alcoholics. And so really, I mean, it was a, a blessing that Dr. Bob was a doctor. I mean, had he not been, we, they wouldn't have been able to get him into these different institutions that they got him in would have had a lot harder time trying to get him sober because that was, that was really what they used was getting him in this hospital room and then getting people in there to help him during that time. <clears throat> when the newcomer was well enough, all the members in town visited him every day. Three or four in the beginning, 20 or more a few days, a few, a few, a few years later. 
there was a sharing of experience and the hope that the prospect would identify. At the same time, Dr. Bob explained the medical facts in plain everyday language. Then the patient was told that a decision was up to him. If the newcomer agreed to go along, he was required to admit that he was powerless over alcohol and then to surrender his will to God in the presence of one or more of the other members. <clears throat> While the emphasis on this was very strong, the earliest AAs agreed that Bob presented God to them as a God of love who was interested in their individual lives. So here's um, a couple stories from people that, that were helped by Dr. Bob and the early members, um, just in how that looked on the other side. Dr. Smith formed the habit of stopping at our house for coffee after hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays, said Paul. At first, this topic was honesty. <clears throat> His topic was honesty. And after several trips, he suggested that I stop kidding myself. Then our topic was changed to faith, faith in God. We had much prayer together in those days and began quietly to read scripture and discuss a practical approach to his application in our lives. <clears throat> so that's, that's really what sponsorship kind of looked like. <clears throat> we went to see Doc at his office, and he told me of his drinking days, J.D. recalled. Then we drove to his house on Ardmore, where I met Ernie, Joe, Harold, Paul, then they rode me around town practically all day without any lunch, telling me about keeping dry. <coughs> but no one would tell me how. JD, one of the few who weren't hospitalized, was invited to attend the meeting at T. Henry's that night. So that was the Oxford group meeting on a Wednesday night. I met seven other men there who had a drinking problem, together with Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. They all told their stories, and I decided there might be hope for me. After the meeting, Bill talked to me for about 30 minutes, and the other boys also came up and talked. Then we had coffee in the kitchen. The next day... I called some of the fellows, and that night two, two of them called me at my home. It seems as though we just lived together when I first came into the group. Me and Paul S. and Harold G., we would go from house to house during the day and wind up one place every night, Bob Smith's. <clears throat> J.D. wasn't allowed to do anything or say anything when they called on new prospects. I was listening and learning and being taught, he recalled. Finally, he was allowed to talk to a prospect after everyone else had seen the man. We used to have almost a set story, J.D. recalled, and we'd, and we'd finagle around and wonder who was the best guy to talk to the new man. <clears throat> so they were all on the same page with how they were approaching this new man. J.D. noted we would discuss new prospects and how we might help others who were already in the group and might be on the verge of a slip. We tried to anticipate those. For instance, Bob told me one night we should go down and see this fellow who was swearing a lot, had missed a meeting or two, who was just about right for a slip. He talked about how to... Uh-oh. We talked about how to get more members and how to handle them. Then we talked about the mistakes we had made in telling our stories. We didn't hesitate to criticize each other. We suggested certain words to leave out and certain words to add in in order to make a more effective talk. It made a bunch of us amateur psychologists and after-dinner speakers out of us. During this period, Jay recalled, he saw Dr. Bob every day of the week, either at his office or in his home. I was over there for four or five times a week in the daytime, and then I'd wind up there at night. So there's a, there's a, a few pamphlets over here, too, um, just kind of on early AA history that were put out by, uh, uh, most of them were, were put out by the Cleveland uh, in, intergroup, first real intergroup. <clears throat> and one of those is the Akron Manual that really talks about all the thought that they put into about going into a hospital and talking to a new man and, and, and how they did that. <clears throat> so that's interesting, and you can see that over there. So these all kind of run together. So um, it's, it's been mentioned um, here, and we're getting close, so bear with me. Um, so in the group, what really stuck out to me is that this was not a, a the, the, the group was not a place. It was not a time. It was not a night of the week. <clears throat> It was a group of alcoholics who were really living life together, who were trying to stay sober together, who were trying to help each other, who were trying to together help others and spend a lot of their time trying to figure out how to best do that, and, and who were time, spending time in, in the morning trying to you know, grow close to, to God together and learn how to practice these principles. That's what the group was. It was a group of people. And, and so you know, one thing that really stuck out to me is, is if, if, if you read the current AA group pamphlet, <clears throat> It says that the main difference between meetings and groups is that AA groups generally continue to exist outside the prescribed meeting hours, ready to provide 12-step work when needed. 
So that's really what was going on there. Is it, it was a group of, of people who were really always together for the purpose of staying sober together and helping other people stay sober. And, and there was a bunch of power in there, and, and, and it mentions that in here. Um, so they did have kind of the Wednesday night Oxford group meeting, but, but really every other night of the week, and, and even that night of the week, they were at Dr. Bob's afterwards and doing all these things together. So, um, so for the Wednesday night group, um, T. T. Henry uh, was at his house. So as T. Henry described it, a typical meeting in 1938-39 went like this. First, there was a setup <clears throat> meeting on Monday. This was made up of those who had a part in, um, in the group and felt a responsibility. We would think about who was going to come and how they might be affected. So there was a lot of thought behind the group. There were certain new people just out of the hospital, for instance. We would wonder whose story would mean the most to them and who was the best to lead the meeting. We sat down and sought guidance and direction as to what to put together for the meeting. We would ask people to take a certain part and be willing to give testimony, keeping the new person in mind. Sounds right. Usually the person who led the Wednesday meeting took something from the upper room, a Methodist periodical um, or some other literature as a subject. <clears throat> Sometimes they selected a theme such as uh, my utmost effort or my high school. There would be quiet time. Just then different people would tell something of their own experience after the meeting. T. Henry continued, we might take the new man upstairs and a group of men would ask him to surrender his life to God and to start in to really live up to the four absolutes and also go out and help the other men who needed it. So that was one night you're through the steps. <clears throat> This was in the form of a prayer group. Several of the boys would pray together and the new man would make his own prayer, asking God to take alcohol out of his life. When he was through, he would say, thank you, God, for taking it out of my life. Powerful. During the prayer, he usually made a declaration of his willingness to turn his life over to God. After the meeting closed with the Lord's Prayer, all the men beat it to the kitchen for coffee and most of the women sat around talking to each other, said Wally. Usually the social part of the evening lasted from an hour to an hour and a half. So that's after the hour-long meeting. But it wasn't until we got started going to Kistler's Donut Shop that it became a real social hour. So that's another hour on top of that. That's three and a half hours. We had an intense loyalty to each other, said J.D. We would meet each other on payday and make sure nothing happened. When I had a slip after four months, I felt as though I had let down the most wonderful fellows on earth. You know that sentence in the big book, that there were people saved from shipwreck. That, that was it, really. We had that closeness. There was a, this was the pioneering group, and you weren't absolutely sure it would work, so you <laughs> couldn't possibly overdo it. You couldn't take anything for granted. And the friendship, none of us had friends before. We had lost all our friends. So there's... Um, I'll read one other thing on the group and then we're about ready to close and we're going to read it later on during one of the talks but I think it's worth reading twice <clears throat> it says one man and his wife placed their large home at the hospital of the, at the disposal of this strangely assorted crowd this couple has since become so fascinated that they have dedicated their home to the work me and distracted wife has visited this house to find loving and understanding companionship among women who knew their problem, to hear from the lips of their husbands what had happened to them, to be advised how their own wayward mate might be hospitalized and approached and approach when he stumbled. Many a man yet days from his hospital experience has stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. He's come to the gay crowd inside who laughed at their own misfortunes and understood his. Impressed by those who visited him at the hospital, he capitulated entirely when later in an upper room of the house, he heard the story of some man whose experience closely tallied with his own. The expression of the faces of the women, the, that indefinable something in the eyes of the men, the stimulating and electric atmosphere of the place, conspired to let him know here was a haven at last. The very practical approach to his problems, the absence of intolerance of any kind, the informality, the genuine democracy, the uncanny understanding which these people had were irresistible. He and his wife would leave elated by the thought of what they could do for some stricken acquaintance and his family. They knew they had a host 
of new friends. It seemed that they had known these strangers always. They had seen miracles, and one was to come to them. They had visioned the great reality, their loving and all-powerful creator. I always get a little emotional when I read that. I think that's because that's what's happened to me. Um, so, AA ended up splitting from the Oxford group basically because they, 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 were, they were just the differences. I'm not going to go into all that. We're getting a little short on time here. Um, um, <laughs> the Oxford group was essentially trying to force them into what they were doing. And, and, and the AA members just didn't like it. And, uh, and the AA members just didn't want to, they didn't really believe in these absolute all-at-once things either. And, and so there, were, there was just conflict, and, and they ended up, over time, really when enough AA members stayed sober on their own, they really felt like, hey, we, we don't, we've got each other and we don't need these people anymore. And, um, and, and that's, that was really for the, you know, the reason for the, for the split as well as AA really you know, feeling like we need to open this up to everybody and be more inclusive and, and not make it a religious um, thing. And the Oxford group also at the time was, you know, was getting into some, some controversy and, and the Catholic Church had said they weren't even letting people come into the Oxford group anymore. And it just became clear to Bill that if we continue to ally ourselves with, with these people, we're going to exclude a lot of people that want to get sober. And so really God just spoke to them and it was clear to everybody that that, that we need to make this a, a little bit different in our work. <clears throat> so in 1939, A really kind of exploded. Um, and so if you just look at Cleveland, for example, in 1939, the, um, the, the Plain Dealer articles that came out, just all this publicity, these different articles that you read in the forwards, um, AA went from 15 people in Cleveland to 300 in a year. Imagine your group doing that. Um, how, how do you handle that? That it just changes everything. This this feel of a small group, and I'm just we're only going to let people in who go into the hospital and we sponsor in. You, just, you can't do that anymore. They're getting overwhelmed, and uh, it went from one group to 30 groups in Cleveland in, in a year. And so, just as an example, they got um, through New York and then to the the, the inner group there in Cleveland. Um, in the first month, they got 500 12-step calls, and they only had 13 people to do it. So these 13 people were going out and making seven or eight calls every night after they were getting off work, trying to go out and find these people and help these people and crowd these people and everything else that goes on with it. And, and so out of this growth, these concepts of, of, of the group, it wasn't the same. It went from this 15 small, intimate group of people where everybody knew each other to 300 people. And so that's where the concept of the, eight, the, eight, the home group kind of came in was in order to keep that same feel and what was really working in, in that first group, they had to say, okay, well, we're going to have these different groups and this is your home group and you guys are really kind of like a family where you know each other and care about each other and doing stuff together and are helping people together and trying to grow together. And, and that's where you know, the home group kind of came from this concept of the group was really due to this growth and, and sponsorship was kind of the same thing and there's a pamphlet over there written by Clarence and that inner group is really the first sponsorship pamphlet that, that talks about what is that because the big book really didn't define it because it was so small. They were all just kind of sponsoring people kind of together as, as a group and because there were so many people coming in, they just had to define it um, a little bit better. Um, but you know, I think the point within the context of this talk is that um, as it grew and changed and as AA grew and went to different places and different cultures and it looked a little bit differently, you know, these common principles are still there and certainly should be there um, and work when these things are there. There's just more power in the simplicity and the personalness um, of it. And, uh, and, and hope, I hope that, I know for me, in going through this and developing this, it was really helpful for me to, to understand, just put things in perspective of where it came from and the roots. And I, I think it gives it a little bit more, more power, I hope. I hope there's some things that maybe... Um, I know for sure I can, I guess I'll speak for that, that I can take back to my group and I can take back to helping people and I can take back to, you know, what are these principles really? Where did they come from? Man, this place that they came from do have a little bit more, more power to it. Um, <clears throat> so the last thing I'll read is, um, is from Dr. Bob's talk. And then we'll... I'll, I'll really close. <clears throat> it says... Um, there are, two three, there are two or three things that flashed into my mind, this is Dr. Bob's last talk, on which it would be fitting to lay a little emphasis. One is the simplicity of our program. Let's not louse it up with Freudian complexes and things 
that are interesting to the scientific mind but have very little to do with our actual AA work. Our 12 steps, when simmered down to the least, resolve themselves into the words love and service. We understand what love is and we understand what service is. So let's bear these two things in mind. Let's also remember to guard that airy member, the tongue. And if we must use it, let's use it with kindness and consideration and tolerance. And one more thing, none of us would be here today. Somebody hadn't taken time to explain things to us, to give us a little pat on the back, to take us to a meeting or two, to do numerous little kind and thoughtful acts on our behalf. So let us never get such a degree of smug complacency that we're not willing to extend or attempt to extend to our less fortunate brothers that help which has been so beneficial to us. That's it. Thank you.